this is undisciplined. Academic by nature, undisciplined in practice. Now let's get into it. This is part two of the story of Nelson Hackett. If you have not heard the previous episode, you'll probably be a bit confused. So head back to the episode titled Running Away from Fayetteville. Previously on Undisciplined, we heard about Nelson Hackett, the enslaved man in Fayetteville, Arkansas, who escaped and made his way across the Mississippi River, across Illinois, to Detroit, Michigan, and eventually across the border to Chatham, Canada. So we're at, he's crossed over all of these different points. He gets to Detroit? He gets to Detroit probably late August 1841 Mm -hmm. and crosses the Detroit River into Canada West. So August, so it's not frozen yet. It's not frozen yet. (laughs) Yes, so none of these um, rivers and and, bodies of water are frozen. Then he makes his way to, to Chatham. Yeah. Uh, about 50 miles east of Detroit. And Chatham is, is it got the reputation right before the, the Civil War of Canada's Black Mecca. Mm-hmm. And because uh, the, it was... Like Utopia. It had a, a large, vibrant black community. It had um, a, a black school, a black church funded by British philanthropists. It was, you know, a, a place that African-Americans could build community. Because we have to remember that Canada, or at least white Canada, was like the north of the United States. Mm-hmm. Most white northerners didn't like slavery. Mm-hmm. They didn't like black people either, but they, they you know, you know they, they didn't want slavery and they didn't want black people living there. But at least Canada, um, as a British territory, slavery had been abolished by 1833. Yeah, it had been abolished in Illinois. It had been abolished in Ohio. Mm-hmm. But, but, you know, and, but people, white people in Illinois, the vast majority of them, 90-some percent, didn't want black people living there. Mm-hmm. In Ohio, um, for a while, if you were a, a free black person, um, you, you had, had a to number of put, days to get out of town. Or you had to put up a bond. You had to put up a $500 bond to ensure that uh, your good behavior. And, and, and so, 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 all of these people. <laughs> <laughs> and and so, so white Canada is much like that. And people tend to think that Canada is like, you know, like the better, like the better brother <laughs> of the United States. <laughs> like, oh, we're more decent. They're nicer up there. <laughs> Like back Canadians back to differ. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and so and so. I mean, if you are a fugitive, yeah, there are a lot of places in Canada that you you are literally unwelcome. But Chatham was a place where that black people could build a community, and from most of the evidence suggests that the black community in Chatham was mostly from Kentucky, and uh, fugitives from Kentucky. And with all migrations, there's push and pull factors. Right. And there is chain migration. Exactly. It's quite possible. That Nelson came from Kentucky? Yeah. And knew that people had ran there? Or or he had people there. Alfred Wallace, the the, the man who um, had the legal title to... Nelson Hackett, once he found out that Nelson Hackett had crossed the Mississippi at Marion City, he just goes straight to Canada. Whew. 
And he goes straight to Canada and he goes straight to Chatham. And so he knows. That he there's a knows, connection. He knows there's a connection. Mm. And he knows which town to look in. And, and, and so. And so, so did you trace Wallace's background, Mike? Yes. Well, well we, know, we know a lot about the Wallaces. Where did he come from? Georgia. Okay. So he's in Canada. So, and Wallace so, knows that. No, Wallace knows where to go. Where's, where to go to track him down. And so they find him. Wallace grabs two justices of the peace and goes and barges where in on where Nelson Hackett is staying. And they beat the crap out of him. Um, they beat him with a, uh, a whip handle. They give him a concussion. And they throw him in jail. And they say, we want to extradite him back to Arkansas to face charges of theft. And Alfred Wallace knew that Canada— Theft of himself as no. a person? Oh, I'm sorry. Frederick Douglass stealing no. his limbs and his head no, and the- body? Theft of the coat, the hat, the gold watch, the chain, the horse, and the saddle. Mm. So the other things. The other things. Mm. Also, Alfred Wallace claimed that Nelson Hackett took about $500 worth of gold and silver when he left. And this is like the, the rape story. When push came to shove, it was never really pushed, that, that $500. But here's the strange thing. Alfred Wallace was one of the officers in the Arkansas State Bank, a state-chartered bank with an office here in Fayetteville, and it was corrupt as the day is long, Mm. and money disappeared from the bank left and right. But I'm thinking also, Mike, that what if this was winnings from the horse and the fighting? I don't know. Or this is stolen money that he had taken from the Arkansas bank. It could be stolen money he took from the Arkansas bank. And trusted it with Nelson to take home. And Nelson uh, was I, like, you know what? You could kick rocks, Alfred. <laughs> I, I, I think money disappeared from the Arkansas State Bank. Many people thought Alfred Wallace <laughs> might be involved with that. <laughs> We're looking at you, Alfred. <laughs> and, 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 and so maybe, maybe he took the money. Who knows? Nelson Hackett was extradited on charges of Stealing the house, the horse, the saddle, the coat, the hat. Because he knew that Canada, where slavery had been abolished. And fugitives were free and safe. Yeah. They wouldn't extradite extradite him just for being an enslaved person or fugitive. Mm -hmm. And so they they needed... They needed another charge. So Nelson Hackett was... This was in early September of 1841. Mm -hmm. And so he was taken to the jail in a place called Sandwich, which is right across the river from Detroit. The jail, in fact, it was on the river, and you could probably see Detroit from it. And he sat there for months and months while Canada said, what do we do? Do we send him back? But he's already stateside. No, no. Oh, he's, he's in Sandwich. He's in Sandwich. So looking across at Detroit. He's looking across. Okay. At, he's, he's like right at the border. Yes. He's just right at the border. And, and the Canadians are, are debating this. There's a group of free black people in Detroit. Um, and they organize the Colored Vigilant Committee. Mm-hmm. 
And what they do is they send people to check on Nelson Hackett. Well, they were convinced. They were convinced. They're, they're like, ah, Canada is never going to send him back. That Canada, you know, the, the abolitionist community in Canada is strong. Uh, the, the British Empire's commitment to abolitionism is strong. And the Canadian governor is never going to send him back. Well, Newgate Canadian governor arrives straight off the boat from England. And he gets there and he says, I'm sending Nelson Hackett back. And he said, because this, he says, look, this man's a thief. He's a criminal. And we don't want criminals settling amongst us. And so Nelson Hackett becomes the first, and as we'll see, the only fugitive from slavery that Canada sends back into bondage in the United States. And in February of 1842, Nelson Hackett is blindfolded. He's bound. He's put on a boat and crosses the Detroit River at midnight. I, I just, the thought of being in a cold boat bound up, crossing back into slavery just sends shivers down my spine. And then he sits in a Detroit jail for two more months. And at that time, the, the Colored Vigilance Committee holds a couple meetings. What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And the Colored Vigilance Committee says, look, we have to alert this broader transnational abolitionist community. Mm-hmm. And they, they publish and they, they, they write resolutions. We cannot allow this to stand. If Nelson Hackett can be extradited on charges of theft, every slaveholder in the United States is going to be at our borders with some pretext that that fugitive uh, stole something from me. And, and no black person will ever be safe in Canada again. And they said, this has to stop. This has to absolutely stop. We cannot allow this to happen. And sends out notices and resolutions to William Lloyd Garrison's paper, to the British and Foreign Anti-Slavery Society, abolitionists in the United Kingdom, along the East Coast, throughout Canada. And, And what they do is they sound the alarm. This is when the broader abolitionist community gets involved and they start protesting. You know, look, don't send it back. But really, once Nelson Hackett's back into the United States, the deal is over. He is coming. He's, he's heading back to Arkansas. Once Nelson Hackett is moved across the Detroit River and is in the Detroit jail, his fate is, is pretty well determined. And, but they have to wait until April to bring him back to, to Arkansas. And, and, and so this local guy, and, and then a guy comes all the way from Fayetteville to escort Nelson Hackett back to Fayetteville. And so they want to go the safest way possible. And, and so, so they don't leave Detroit until early April of 1842. And they wait because they have to let the ice clear on Lake Huron and Lake Michigan. And so, so they, they, they fit him up in a hobble. And a hobble is a iron contraption with arms going out both sides. It's fitted around the neck. It's to make 
escape really hard. And Nelson Hackett and his two captors get on a boat, a steamer, and they go up Lake Huron and down Lake Michigan. They get to Chicago, and they get on a stage in Chicago. And for a three-day trip to Peoria, where they will get on a steamship on the Illinois River to the, the Mississippi, on that stagecoach ride from Chicago to Peoria, Nelson Hackett escapes again. He escapes in a town called Princeton, Illinois, and he slips out of an inn at night, gets off his hobble, and is trying desperately again to get freedom. Captors offer a $200 reward for his return. After several nights, he goes up to a farm, and the farmer he asks the farmer for food, and the farmer says, I got you, and turns him in for a reward. There's a reason I'm saying this, because Alfred Wallace paid thousands and thousands of dollars to secure the return of Nelson Hackett to Fayetteville. He had to pay the expenses of the posse that originally tracked him. He had to pay the expenses of going all the way to Chatham to capture Nelson Hackett. He had to pay the expenses of housing Nelson Hackett for months in the jail sandwich. He had to pay lawyers. He had to pay expenses of transporting him to Detroit and housing him in the Detroit jail. He had to pay the expenses of the dude who came from Fayetteville, went from Fayetteville to Detroit to bring Nelson Hackett back. He had to pay the guy in Detroit to transport Nelson Hackett. He had to pay the $200 reward. He had to pay for the food of all of these people. He was paying thousands and thousands yeah, and thousands of bank. dollars to secure the return of an enslaved man that he had paid $1,000 for several months earlier. And one of the newspapers talked to a guy named Louis Davenport. He was the guy up in Michigan who, who transported Hackett back to Fayetteville. And, and Davenport says, you know, Alfred Wallace has spent all of this money, and he's doing it to make an example out of, out of Nelson Hackett. So he pays all this money. And, and to, to get Nelson Hackett back. Mm -hmm. he, they finally get back to Fayetteville in the, the early summer of, of 1842. And we, we have a couple of accounts of what happened. One account says that he was publicly whipped and beaten on five or six occasions. And that one of the, the whippings was 120 lashes, which is, is literally enough to kill a person. Some of the other beatings were 50, 60 lashes. And we, we heard this from another fugitive who gets to Canada in the 1850s, and he runs into Hiram Wilson, the abolitionist who visited him and, and, and tells the story to Hiram Wilson, and Hiram Wilson writes about it in The Liberator, William Lloyd Garrison's paper. And what this account says is that the, the purpose of the beating was to make a show to all of the other enslaved people in Fayetteville that if you escape, these are the consequences. There is no end to how far we will go to retrieve you. 
we will enlist the governor of California, uh, governor of Arkansas, the governor of Canada, all of these court systems, and we will we will get him back, and he will be punished. At the end of the summer, Nelson Hackett had all of the signs of all of these whippings and these beatings. And then Alfred Wallace sold him to Texas. And selling him to Texas, and, and Texas was a republic at this time. It was before the annexation of Texas into the United States. And selling an enslaved person to Texas was the equivalent of working them to death. It was a, a form of torture. It was a slow, painful death. But that's not the end of the story. The last report we have is that Nelson Hackett escaped a third time either in Fayetteville or on his way to Texas. We know this because abolitionists, Joshua Giddings, Lewis Tappan, a guy named Joshua Levitt, they were trying to figure out where Nelson Hackett was, and they made inquiries. And at one point, uh, a guy named Edward Cross, and Edward Cross was Arkansas's member of the U.S. House of Representatives. Edward Cross goes and visits Joshua Levitt, and Joshua Levitt is this prominent abolitionist. He was part of the Amistad Committee. And Edward Cross goes to Joshua Levitt and says, look, we don't know what happened. Last report I have, Nelson Hackett escaped. Could be dead, could be free. I have, we have no idea. And so in many ways, that's the end of, of, that's all we know about Nelson Hackett. That's where Nelson Hackett's story ends. There's a possibility, there's a hope that he somehow found some sort of freedom. It's probably highly doubtful, but... Maybe he discovered the Underground Railroad into Mexico? I don't... You know, there's a possibility. Or the other possibility, and this is something that I think abolitionists along the East Coast and in the United Kingdom offered to buy Nelson Hackett. Mm -hmm. But if abolitionists bought him, we would have certainly... Heard of it? Maybe. The spectacle around him being I, I, purchased would have I, been I don't something. Know. Maybe there was an agreement. I don't know, and I, I'm just—it's a possibility. You know, we we don't know. Sometimes, as historians, you're cynical, and, and you think that these abolitionists, like Garrison and the, and Lewis Tappan and Joshua Levitt, they're so interested in the cause that individuals get lost in the shuffle. Mm -hmm. But here, he, uh, Tappan and Giddings and Levitt, after they had lost the battle, were, were trying to figure out what happened how to, to Nelson and how, and what, or how, how to help Nelson Hackett, the human being. So this, the conflict between how did... Nelson Hackett's case 
bring the U.S. and Britain into fisticuffs oh, oh, or near oh. fisticuffs. <laughs> the United States and Britain were near fisticuffs <laughs> before Nelson Hackett, you know. And there, there was a number of, of things in the larger context. We can talk about the Amistad case, mm-hmm. but also the Creel. So in 1842, there was a, a ship carrying a cargo of enslaved human beings. 135. From Virginia, and it was intending to go to New Orleans. And while they were in international waters, several of the enslaved men rose up, took control of the ship, and threw people overboard, mm-hmm. and sailed it into Nassau Harbor in the Bahamas. Which was a British port at the time. And, of course, and because you know. it was a British port, were these men now free? And Southerners, uh, apologists for slavery, were outraged about this. And so they petitioned, you have to send us all of these things, uh, these people back. This is piracy. The, the officials in Nassau said, look, There's these nine dudes that we think took over the ship. We're going to put them on trial for piracy. But the rest of the human cargo is now free if they want to live in the Bahamas. Apologists for slavery, slavery supporters were just outraged about this. And then the Bahamian officials or the British officials in the Bahamas put these nine men on trial. And and after a couple of weeks, they say, ah, not guilty. <laughs> Slavery is a crime against humanity, and everyone has the right to try to become free. And, and therefore, what they do, any crimes they commit trying to get their freedom. Any crimes you commit trying to resume your natural and imprescriptible rights. Right? Uh, they don't count. <laughs> and, and there are apologists for slavery, pro-slavery folk who want the United States to send the whole Navy to the but Bahamas. But these people are not violating United States law, right? They are no, they're uh, violating... And these things happened in natu- international waters. They didn't happen on American soil. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but, and so this stuff is going on in parallel to what's happening with Nelson Hackett. And so, so the United States and Britain are just like this. They're, they're, they're going after each other. The Amistad affair is one. The, 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 the Creole rebellion, it's the largest successful slave revolt in U.S. history. And it's all happening at the same time. And within this context, the United States and Great Britain meet to negotiate a treaty to regulate relations between the United States and British North America, Canada and the Bahamas. And a British diplomat, Lord Ashburton, and the U.S. Secretary of State, Daniel Webster, meet all throughout 1842, and they hammer out what is called the Webster-Ashburton Treaty and does several things. It regulates shipping on the Great Lakes. It clarifies the borders of the United States and Canada, but also it contains an extradition clause. And that extradition clause basically takes the precedent set by the extradition of Nelson Hackett and puts it in a treaty. And it's called Article 10 of the Webster-Ashburton Treaty. 
And when this treaty is published, abolitionists in the United States and in Canada and in the United Kingdom recognize that this will have hundreds and thousands of Nelson Hackett cases mm -hmm. after this. That, that, that theft will be used as a pretext to secure the extradition of fugitives from Canada. It's like a built-in excuse. Yes, absolutely. And so this transnational abolitionist community launches a huge campaign to change the Webster-Ashburton Treaty. And they start in the United States before Ashburton actually gets on a boat to leave Washington, D.C. to go back to London. Um, Lewis Tappan and an abolitionist by the name of Garrett Smith, um, they go and visit Lord Ashburton, and, and they speak, and they have this whole sit-down. And Ashburton explains to them that, look, we have to have an extradition clause. Lots of bandits are actually causing trouble with the border. If we change it to exclude fugitives, the U.S. Senate will never ratify this. And, and he says, look, what we have to do is you have to rely on assurances from the British government that the British government re remains committed to the abolition of slavery and shutting down the international slave trade. And Lewis Tappan and Garrett Smith, realizing that they are U.S. citizens, not British subjects, that they're not the ones to make the case to the British government. But I, I want to stop here and point out something. No one, not American abolitionists, not British abolitionists, not Canadian abolitionists, thought to lobby the United States government. Because they knew, they knew that the United States government would do nothing to protect people like Nelson Hackett. Right. That if, if, if between the United States the and the power. British, uh, between the United States and the British Empire, if you were looking, looking to help fugitives from slavery, there's only one of those two powers that that would be responsive, and that was the British Empire. And, and, and so, I mean, that's hard for us as Americans sometimes to, to wrap our minds around. But, you, you know, f f the United States government in the 19th century was committed to the enslavement of African people and protecting the investments of slaveholders in human beings. And if you were looking for a government, a national government, a, a superpower who was committed to abolition and emancipation, it was not the United States. It was the British Empire. So my final question to you is, how do we view Nelson Hackett in the larger sectional crisis in the United States? For a long time, the sectional crisis in the United States that drove the slave states of the South and the free states of the North apart, historians have told that story through the West and slavery in the Western territories. And, and the, the, the evidence that we point to is the Missouri Compromise, the Fugitive Slave Act, the Wilmot Proviso, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, Dred Scott, popular sovereignty. And th that's sort of the, the standard way to explain the, the sectional crisis. But, but more recently, the, there's been a group of scholars led by Richard Blackett who are saying, you know, that's not the whole story. 
that there is another, another pillar of this sectional crisis. There's another issue that is forcing North and South further apart, and that is the issue of fugitives, um, fugitivity. More so, issues about slavery in the West, they're abstract. You know, it, it's about the future. It's about w- how the United States is going to grow. Yeah, whether it will be a slave state or yeah, a free but, state. But yeah. the issue of fugitivity is um, for both Northerners and abolitionists is very real mm-hmm. and very emotional. And, and, and in many ways, that emotion, more than abstract issues about the future of the West— is what is driving this country apart and erupts in civil war. And, and you know, I, I, just this week um, uh, in class, I'm having a, a group of students read the Arkansas succession document. And what are they talking about? Well, they do talk about slavery in the West, but they also talk about enforcement of the Fugitive Slave Act. They castigate the northern states for giving comfort and refuge to enslaved people heading to Canada. What people like Nelson Hackett are doing by making Canada a safe refuge for enslaved people, they are encouraging this fugitivity that make black folk actors in the sectional crisis. And so so when you tell the story of the sectional crisis as Missouri Compromise, Wilmot Proviso, Mexican-American War, Compromise of 1850, Kansas-Nebraska Act, Popular Sovereignty, Dred Scott, Bleeding Kansas, blah, 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 blah. You leave black people out. They have no agency. It is a debate among white people. With black people as objects and this kind of figurative thing, abstract in the minds. So when, by understanding the importance of fugitivity, to the sectional crisis, black people, enslaved people, become actors who change the course of the nation and put into motion the events that lead to the abolition of slavery during the Civil War. I understand that you've received this NEH grant for a summer institute. Yeah, you should know about <laughs> it because you were closely involved with the, 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 the grant process. Um, in fact, through the University of Arkansas Humanities Center and its director, Tricia Starks, Professor Banton, and myself, and Dr. Charlene Johnson, of the School of Education, College of Education, have received a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities for a a two-week summer teaching institute for K-12 teachers. And what we're looking at and what we're going to do is use Nelson Hackett as, as a way, as an avenue into exploring local history and the way that local history can be connected to this larger transatlantic abolitionist movement and um, the, the sectional crisis that erupted in civil war and emancipation. And tell us when and how the, to uh, apply. 
Great. So if our audience, if you're interested in applying for the Hackett Summer Teaching Institute, you can make a free account with the University of Arkansas application portal. And along with general information about the experience and a resume, you as an applicant should prepare an essay of 500 to 750 words that addresses what academic and personal interest drew you to apply and how you plan to enrich the learning environment for everyone that has your professional qualification, what kind of special skills, personal perspective, what you hope to learn and achieve by participating in this summer institute. And why is this summer institute could have an important impact on your professional goals. And all documents should be uploaded as a PDF. And just to mention, to be eligible um, for NEH programs, it's important to note that the NEH do not discriminate on the basis of race, color, national origin, religion, sexual orientation, disability, or age. And you can write to the Equal Opportunity Officer of the National Endowment for the Humanities at 407th Street, Southwest North Washington, D.C., 20024, in order to get the full details on eligibility criteria. So, 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 so the other thing they can do mm-hmm. is they can go to the Nelson Hackett Project website. Right. That is, if you just put in uh, Nelson Hackett Project dot U-A-R-K dot E-D-U, a webpage will show up and it includes a narrative and documents of Nelson Hackett's flight. But it also there's a link to the Summer Teaching Institute. Right. And if you apply and you get accepted, the National Endowment for the Humanities will give you a stipend. Right. will pay your expenses. Yes. You get money. You get to, moolah to be here in Arkansas, in Fayetteville. And so, so personally, I think just spending time with me and Dr. Banton yes. would be plenty it's a reward. It's a treat. Yes. And, and so, but stories, it, for, stories upon stories. You'll tell your grandchildren about <laughs> that two week. To make it even better, you'll get some money from the government. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and, and it will pay your expenses. Think about it as additional tax refund. And so go to nelsonhackettproject.uark.edu, and there's details there. And just read more about Nelson Hackett. It will be good for you. It will make you a stronger and better person. Yes, and so we're just appealing to K-12 through teachers uh, who want to make this a part of their curriculum. All around the country. Absolutely, from as far as Detroit, where we talked about today. Or... As from um, Washington State all the way to Key West. Yes. From Maine all the way down to San Diego. We want you to make this a part of your curriculum in teaching your students how to understand sectional crisis and local histories from a new perspective. Thank you so much, Dr. Pierce, for being on On Discipline. Um, This was certainly a wonderful conversation around Nelson Hackett and fugitivity and We thank you so much for enlightening our audience. Korea and and Matt, thank you for having me. I always like to talk about Nelson Hackett. And I'm enthusiastic, maybe not as enthusiastic as Dr. Banton. (laughs) Anytime it's about black people running away, I'm with it. 100%. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Undisciplined. Our show is hosted by Dr. Karee Banton and produced by me, 
Matthew Moore. Our associate producer is Sean Shoemaker. Undisciplined is a production of KUAF and Ozarks at Large. Thank you.